Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. Um, we're continuing our look into King David's life. And if you were with us last week, there might be uh, a part of you that's wondering, okay, how's, how's this story going to unfold? Um, you know, knowing that David had made some terrible choices. Um, we can't excuse it. There, there's no reason to even think that anything that David did in chapter 11 was just something that he kind of accidentally fell into. So how do we recover in moments like these? Because I, I would say for, for all of us, uh, we're, we're going to find ourselves in times and moments where we're going to wonder, how do I recover from this? Now, for our family, one of our favorite places to go is the beach. It's just a different kind of relaxing for us. Unfortunately, places, even though they are quite beautiful, quite unique, quite wonderful, places like the beach are not immune to natural disasters, much like hurricanes or if you live in another hemisphere, uh, a typhoon. Now, these picturesque places, and I think these are taken right around Fort Myers. Um, these picturesque places can, you know, be a postcard. And then a hurricane bro- blows through. And this is what's left. Or here's another picture of the same town. And if you remember the hurricane that swept through last year, um, going west to east through the state of Florida. Just a a trail of destruction and devastation. These places become a shell of themselves. Total upheaval. Even the way the trees look are sad, right? I mean, they're just kind of hanging out. Now, these images brought to life for me, in a way, the destructiveness of sin when it enters in our lives. It's not only the fact that sin can damage us initially, but the ongoing unconfessed sin that is in our lives seems to sap all of the life in us. It's like a hurricane that blows through a region. And disrupts and destroys everything in its path. And when we have unconfessed sin in our lives, and I'm talking about people who love Jesus. People that walk with God. It causes us to experience a dryness with our relationship with God. And it quite often causes us to have dysfunction in our relationship with others. I would love to say that there have been times in my life when I've fallen short, that I've immediately addressed it and moved forward. I addressed it the way God wanted me to. I went to Him and I claimed the forgiveness that is mine as a child of God. Right? So that I'm no longer a slave of fear. That I'm not bound by the the choices. I'm not known by my failures, but because of Jesus and his love, I've been set free. And in that freedom, I can go to God and be forgiven through the cross. I would love to say that I do that all the time, but my pride gets in the way. My feeling that I know better 
my feeling of I can figure it out. It's not so bad. And what always goes along with that is this ongoing feeling of just feeling discouraged, frustrated, dry in my spiritual life, disconnected to God, and just wondering, God, where are you and what are you doing? And so these passages are good for us in the faith. Now, we might not be like David that, you know, committing the the seriousness of the sins that he committed. If you need reminded of that in chapter 11, we found that David was guilty of committing adultery with Bathsheba. And when she became pregnant, David rushed to try to control the circumstances and through three attempts, eventually was the one that was culpable for killing Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. We may not be as or guilty for as serious sins, but really isn't all sin serious? All of it is an affront to a holy God. And any unconfessed sin in our lives will crush our spiritual relationship with the Lord. Because we can't have fellowship with Him if we are walking in darkness. And again, I'm talking to people in the faith. Of the faith. Chapter 11 reminds us David's sin was against a holy God. And that same God will not sit idly by and let David continue as if nothing happened. If anything for us in this message of despair and sin and the consequences of it. I I pray we also see hope because there is a God that is relentlessly pursuing David. That's not giving up on David. And that's true for us as children of God. God does not give up on us. He does not keep a record of wrongs. He doesn't keep score. God loves us. Our Father wants us to be with Him. And He chases us down. And he brings situations and people and circumstances into our lives to break us so that we would run to him. It was only when David was confronted that he was awakened to the sinfulness of his sin. And it was only when he acknowledged his sin and confessed it that he found freedom from the burden that he was carrying. Make no mistake about it. The events that David found himself in roughly 3,000 years ago are no different for us today when we willfully, stubbornly, selfishly fall into sin and indulge our fleshly hearts. That's what's so wonderful about the Scriptures. It's wonderful in the fact that the, the things that we read about people that lived so long ago It is just as relevant to us today as it was for them when it happened. And we look at this world that we live in and we think, well, so much has changed. The world is so different. You know what? People haven't changed, though. We haven't. It's not like we've gotten better. If anything, we know we've gotten worse. 
And so we come to the scriptures and we're reminded of the goodness and faithfulness of God, even in the midst of terrible, terrible circumstances. That he loves his children. Listen, we can't continue to think we can outsmart God when we sin. And we can't continue to think that when we do that, that he's going to bless us. Galatians chapter 6 helps us to understand this. Paul writes, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Right? We can't make a fool of God. We can't convince him that we have it all figured out when he knows our hearts. And we need to understand that if we are living lives in willful rebellion to God, it's going to reap more rebellion. And it's going to reap trouble. It's going to reap consequences. And it's going to seem like the world is crashing down around us. And there might be people that seem like they've figured it out, right? Because doesn't that seem to be the message of Scripture when you read the Old Testament, whether it's the Psalms or you even read the New Testament, and you read these passages that say, God, why does it seem like the wicked prosper? And you look around and you think, well, they seem to be getting ahead by the evil and the deceit that they're doing. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. There is a reckoning for every person. And we are either made right through the cross of Jesus Christ and forgiven. Or we will stand before God in judgment and be separated from Him for all eternity. And it's not because God is vindictive. It's because God is holy. And in His holiness, He cannot allow sin to be in his presence. Do not be deceived. But when we turn towards him, when we acknowledge our sin, oh, the grace that we find. It's abundant and it leads to freedom. And Galatians 5.1 says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Why did Jesus come? To set us free. And when we are free in the Son, we will be free indeed. We are called into a relationship with our loving Heavenly Father, and we don't approach Him in fear and trembling, and we're not looking over our shoulder and wondering what He's going to do next if He's out to get us. We understand that who we are as a child of God is not based on us, our performance, what we do, but it's based on the kindness and grace of God who has given us all that we need through His Son. And we stand firm before the throne of grace, entering into the holy place, redeemed. It is for freedom that we have been set free. And one of the wonderfully marvelous, it almost seems like doesn't make sense kind of things of the gospel is. When we come to Christ and are set free, we are really set free to be yoked to Christ. 
Because we are never meant to be free agents doing whatever we want, however we want, whenever we want. We're set free to enjoy our Father who loves us. Now I say all this because there may be some here today that are living like David did in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and then the beginning of chapter 12. Thinking that you've controlled the situations of your life, that no one's going to find out what you've done, what you've been thinking, what you are guilty of. And yet you've been running from God because you have been unwilling to deal with the sin that is in your life and confess it to him. And you might say, come on, we're in church. We're here. Listen, a person can go through the motions of spirituality, but if there is unconfessed sin in their life, there is not going to be any joy in their spiritual life. It's not going to be there. You can sing songs, you can read the Bible, you can even serve in ministry, but if there's unconfessed sin, there is no joy. Like the winds of a hurricane leaving a tropical place, a disaster zone. So too does unconfessed sin cause great trouble that can only be remedied through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting to note when you make the transition from chapter 11 into chapter 12 is that many scholars believe that the events of chapter 12 occur up to one year after the events of chapter 11. This wasn't immediate. This wasn't initial. This wasn't like the next day. When we finished chapter 11, what did we read? When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. This is Bathsheba. And she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And remember, that was the only time God's name was mentioned in this whole chapter. David was living as if he was in control of everything. Every decision that he made was apart from God. He was not dealing with the sin in his life as he should. He just kept living. And he's the king. He's the same David that God made promises to in chapter 7 where he says, David, I'm not going to leave you and through you. I will establish an eternal throne. But for at least a year in his life, or up to a year in his life, David lived a life of secrecy. A life full of hypocrisy. He was not honest. He did not handle and deal with his sin the way that God had desired. His spiritual life was dry. I'm sure he was unmotivated. And what's interesting is the contrast, right? Of a man who danced his way into Jerusalem carrying the ark of God. Now a prison in a prison of his own. Isolated. And disconnected with the Lord who loved him. David was living an unaccountable life. You know, when we look at the world that we live in and, and we see the, the, the tragic decisions that often are made by people that not only should know better, but people that are in high places, right? Like it seems like in, no one is immune, whether it's 
in a, the political realm or whether it's in the corporate world or whether it's in uh, society in general, people in high places that have these tragic downfalls, you think, how did you get here to this point? You know, I, I shared this last week that as a person who follows the church and what's going on in the church, just how tragic it's been over the last at least five years of these cataclysmic downfalls by people that led large ministries. And I often wonder, how did they get to this place where they're accused and they're guilty of such heinous things? I mean, people don't just wake up that day and say, you know, I'm going to decide to do this. And what we find is that, you know, the higher up the ladder you go, the less accountability there seems to be in people's lives. And like they surround themselves with sycophants that just tell them what they want to say, what they want to hear, and and there's no accountability. And we see that when we live lives that are unaccountable, just how dangerous we can be because we find ourselves in places able to justify so much. David is not accountable right now. But God is not sitting idly by. By His grace, the Lord brought Nathan into his life at just the right moment. And so let's look at this text in chapter 12. Let me read verse 1. Then the Lord said, sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, now I know there's more there, but I'm going to tie that into what he says. But I just want us to note something here. Who sends whom? It's God. The Lord sent Nathan to David. From God's perspective, time is up. It's time that David deals with his sin. And we know Nathan, we were introduced to Nathan as the prophet that was called to to be a part of David's life and ministry. The same Nathan that David went to and said, I want to build God a house. And Nathan said, sounds like a great idea. And that same very night, hours later, God came to Nathan and said, you need to tell David he's not supposed to be building me a house. I'm going to do something far greater in his life. It's this Nathan that God sends. And you know what I love about God sending Nathan, Nathan obeyed. The Lord sent Nathan to David and Nathan came to him and said. That's important. Because what we're going to see in these events is sometimes God is going to send people into our lives to, to bring us accountable for before the grace of God. And if God is working in someone's life to call them to bring them to you when you are in a time of distress, a time of sin, just know that it is an act of grace that they are standing there before you. We're going to learn some things about Nathan's approach that I hope becomes a part of our understanding in those moments. Because, you know, sometimes don't we just say, well, who are you to confront me? And we come up with all these excuses and reasons why that person 
should not be the one that's calling out our sin. And we continue to self-justify our standing. David wasn't pursuing the Lord in this season in his life, and he's in deep trouble. If you want to put your bulletin in 2 Samuel 12, just move forward in the Old Testament to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, and we're going to look at another psalm next week, Psalm 51. But in Psalm 32, David writes a psalm of David, it says, a maskil. A maskil is a Hebrew word for instruction. This psalm, this song is to instruct the people that will read it and sing, sing it. And so what we are reading is a song that David wrote about a time in his life when he had unconfessed sin. It's very likely the same time. And the lessons that we can learn through his life as it applies to ours. And we're going to go back and look at the rest of this psalm at the end of the message. But look at verses 3 and 4. This is what David says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. David's body was wasting away in 2 Samuel 12. He was living an unaccountable life with unconfessed sin. And he woke up every day. And if you remember, he was around 50 years old and And he woke up every day, crawling out of bed, exhausted. Do you ever wake up and already you're exhausted? Do you ever feel like all of your vitality is zapped from you? Listen, I'm not going to tell you that every time you feel that way, it's because you have unconfessed sin. But can we at least be honest with ourselves that it's a good place to begin? Examine our hearts. Like, what's going on inside of us? I mean, we live in a world where we try to find a reason or an excuse for everything. We take ibuprofen if we have a backache. We take a lo- an afternoon nap when we're tired. And it escalates. Like, we go on and we see doctors and doctors and doctors and all those things. And, you know, sometimes the way we feel physically is because we have spiritual needs that need addressed. And I'm just going to ask you, I'm going to invite you to to press into that at times and just stand before the throne of grace and ask God through your spirit, search my heart. Reveal to me the areas of my life that I need to confess to you, that I've let you down, that I've fallen short in. David has no vitality. And yet God's faithfulness remained. The Lord made promises to David and he's going to keep those promises But he has to break David from his sinful will. The father is seeking to bring David back home. And so he sends Nathan. And so the prophet goes with a message. Nathan is the right person at the right time with the right message. He's the perfect person to go to David at this season in his life. 
And notice that Dave, or Nathan doesn't come with Scripture in hand and he's like pounding the Scriptures over David. I think that's a lesson for us, right? When we are going to someone that we know is dealing with some things and they are living out of harmony with the will of God, that we don't go just like beating them over the head with the Bible and making them feel really bad about what they're doing and how they're living and just kind of like scorched earth policy over their life. Nathan comes and what does he do? He shares a story to draw David in. This is what he says. I'm reading from 2 Samuel chapter 12, the end of verse 1 through verse 4. There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So you kind of step away from this and, oh, this is a perfect story for David. Why? Because he's a shepherd. And he understands the economy of what's going on here between having flocks and, and those that would be precious. And so Nathan comes before David. He, he shares this story. And just so you understand who's who in this story, the rich man represents David. The poor man is Uriah. And the ewe lamb is Bathsheba. And so he shares this story about a rich man who had all of these flocks and, and right Middle East custom customs would say when someone, a visitor is coming in, you would invite them in and prepare a meal for them. And this rich man looks around at all that he has and he says, you know, I don't want to take what I have. But man, I know that guy that has that one little baby ewe lamb that is precious to him. It's, you know, I'll, I'll just take that. No big deal. I don't lose anything. And what do we read in verse 5? David hears this story. (laughs) Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. Man, there's a lot of hypocrisy going on in that statement. But you know what's interesting is that the Mosaic law did not require the death penalty for theft. It required it for adultery. It required it for murder. David, as king, hears the story and says, "Ah, how could this rich man do this thing to this poor man who loves this animal? Like David knows exactly how he would have felt. But in pronouncing judgment, David acknowledges that he deserves to die for his actions. In verse 6, we read, David says, He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Right? David is a man of compassion. He showed compassion to Mephibosheth. He showed compassion in 1 Samuel as he had opportunity after opportunity to end Saul's life. 
And he chose not to because he had made a promise to Jonathan. And David knew that he should not be the one that would raise up a hand to God's anointed. David's a man of compassion, but not in 2 Samuel 11. There is no compassion in David. He took what was not his. And he not only destroyed a man's life, he took a man's life. He was guilty of that. So verse 7, Nathan said to David, what? David, Nathan says to David, four words, three letters long. And he takes a proverbial mirror and shines it in the face of David. And he says, you are the man. The prophet had a message. David, you're the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Right, so Nathan's the prophet that is speaking on behalf of God, brings the story, calls David to attention, calls him to task in his actions, and then God speaks through the prophet. Nathan's response is helpful to us when it comes to confronting those that we know who are in willful sin and rebellion. First, God sent and Nathan came. Second, Nathan built a bridge with a story. He didn't just thump him over the head with the Bible. And third, Nathan did not mince words. He wasn't kind of all apologetic and just kind of like, oh, you know, David, you know, I really don't want to hurt your feelings. But, you know, when you really think about it, oh, there was just this minor thing. No, he says, David, you're the man. He brought David to the place where he was accountable to the truth. And he says, now, listen, because of that, this is what you're guilty of. David was held accountable for his actions, not just towards humans, but towards the God who ultimately he sinned against. And so we read. We read God's response. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. God's speaking. He's like, David, why? David, look back on your life and the faithfulness I have shown you every step of the way. Why would you do this? God is saying to David in these moments, David, consider my faithfulness. And in everything that you did concerning Bathsheba and Uriah, you you forsook all of that and pressed on in your flesh. And we read that David's choices... David's sin are going to have consequences. Can we just clarify that even as born again believers, forgiven people that have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus, you are forgiven for your sin, but your sin will often have consequences. God forgives sin. God doesn't always remove the consequences. 
what does God say as judgment over David? Because there is judgment here. There is a reckoning for what he did. Verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. There are consequences. We're going to fast forward a little bit here, but Absalom, one of David's sons, will lie with David's concubines in the wide open. And his son will turn his affections away from his father and seek to kill his dad to assume the throne. And David leaves Jerusalem running for his life from his own son. So the consequences are laid out. Look at verse 13, though. When confronted, David did not run away and complain. Like a petulant child that says, oh, boo-hoo, it's not fair. What does he say? Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now we're talking about a man who's after God's heart. Right? Because when we fall short, it's ultimately before the Lord. He owned his actions and when confronted, acknowledged and confessed his sin. It took a long time for David to get to this place. Too long. But he did. And when he declared, I have sinned against the Lord, you can almost get this sense of like fresh, a fresh spring breeze like washing over him. Where his vitality is restored. Where life is back in his bones. The blessing, the relief that David felt was in verse 13. Nathan said to David after his confession, The Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. David's sin would not lead to death. It should have. He should have died for his actions. But God forgave his sin. There were consequences. But God did not remove his presence from David's life. Nor did God change the promises that he made to David. For us, verse 13 shouts to us, of the promise of one greater who has taken away our sin and will not cause us to die. Our sin was nailed to the cross, paid for by the perfect Son of God, so that we would not die but be forgiven and given eternal life. And even though there are temporal consequences that we're going to go through when we fall short of the glory of God, The eternal consequences are removed through the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus shed his blood. blood. He forgave our sins. And he invites us into fellowship with the Father. John wrote this in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I'm going to paraphrase verse 10, but basically in verse 10, John says, if you think you haven't sinned, you're a fool. So that's all of us. I cannot stress enough that the gospel encourages us to run towards God when we fall short rather than run away from God. We run towards grace, not away from grace. That is why it is so good for us to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, reminding ourselves of the amazing grace of God revealed to sinners like us. It's the good news that we find a God who loves us and wants to restore us. But we need to come to Him and confess and acknowledge when we have sinned against Him. And know along the way, sometimes God is going to wait, and He's going to wait, and He's going to wait some more, but sometimes He's going to send a friend. He's going to send someone into your life who in love is going to come to you and look you in the eyes and share with you the truth of God and say, you are the man or woman. And when that happens, don't run farther away. Don't excuse it. Don't try to make all the reasons why you're justified in what you did. When that happens, run to Him and know that you have a God who will abundantly forgive you. Look again at Psalm 32 as we close. A Psalm of David and Maskell. Verse 1, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whom spirit there is no deceit. In verse 5 we read, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. That great sinner in chapter 11 wrote these words. How? Because he gave it to God and confessed his sin. And God restored to him the joy of his salvation. In the next few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And I just want to encourage you in these moments as you consider everything that Jesus did for you. If you don't have joy this morning, search your heart. Ask God to reveal to you what needs to be confessed. 
and run to him because when you confess it, he will forgive you. That's his promise.